Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. go over something in our language here as I said last night it's a specialized language you have to know our terms to really make sense of it just like you would have to know what Atman and Brahman is when an Indian guru is talking about self and no self and greater self or just as Takuan is talking about Fudoshin, you'd have to know what that means, how he understands the term Mushin. You can't just look it up. So in our language, our discourse, we have used the model of our minds having two aspects. We call them the first aspect and the second aspect. And we've defined the first aspect with another term, the ego tripartite. And so you can refer to it as the first aspect or the ego tripartite. And we've said the ego tripartite consists of your subjective sense of identity, you, your experience of yourself, a dichotomous worldview, and a behavioral paradigm consisting of a preference and an avoidance, and all three rise together, and all three support each other. That's why we call it tripartite. The second mind aspect, we've referred to it in many different ways. Consciousness, God consciousness, the divine. But in essence, it's another aspect of ourselves that is not the ego tripartite. In other words, when we stop functioning through the ego tripartite, or in other words, when we experience ourselves and reality, our, the world in which we are in, but we're experiencing it outside of the ego tripartite. That is the second mind aspect. We've also referred to it as a reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy. This has been joined with uh, our practices, our drills, our training oriented towards gaining a functionality 
of the second mind aspect, experiencing that reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy. And sometimes it makes it seem as if that's the ultimate goal, but that is not the ultimate goal. Sometimes all our training, all our effort, all our orientation, our direction makes it seem as if it's an end in itself. Or even if I can get that experience, then that's it, I did it. But this is not true either. What you have to remember is your training is connected to a wisdom tradition. It's not just an experiential tradition. This is why all those times in various states of euphoria or ecstasy or lovemaking or drug-induced moments where your ego tripartite ceases to function are just no big deal. Because in and of themselves, they're pretty meaningless. Because they do not bring with them the ability to align ourselves with the wisdom tradition. In and of themselves, they do not. So throughout history, in various mystical traditions, it's always told, you're always told, it's no big deal, man, chill out. You're not the Buddha. You just experience this reconciliation between the subject and object. You lost that egoic sense of self for a moment. Big, no big deal. You could do that all the time. What is important is perhaps the agency or the skill at which you can reconcile subject-object. So in our training, we're after that agency. We're not after, per se, the moment or the experience itself. So another reason why not to value all those happenstance, coincidental moments where we may have experienced this reconciliation of the subject-object. It's not, it's not really what we're doing because at the most or at the least, we're after the agency. Can you do it now? That's the question. Can you do it always? That's the question. Can you do it here in this environment, in this space-time, in this moment where all shit is hitting the fan? Because if you can't, all those other moments you've had are irrelevant and 
basically useless. So we want the agency. But why do we want the agency? If the experience is not the end in itself, why do we want the agency? It's because that ability allows us to abide in a wisdom tradition. Because the ego tripartite cannot. We will make our life decisions not based on wisdom, but upon fear or pride or ignorance. Those things that give rise to the ego tripartite. In this way, the monk and the swordsman meet. Because when you look at your martial decisions or your decision-making dilemmas, you see that martially there is some sort of division between better things to do and worse things to do. And there is a kind of wisdom there. Wisdom is this distinction between better things to do and worse things to do. You can look at it, again, staying martially. We would call this advantage. There are things you do that give you more martial advantage and things you do that will give you less martial advantage. Things you will do that will put you at a martial disadvantage. This is strategy. The very term strategy assumes alignment with wisdom. So for the swordsman, he realized long ago that it's very difficult to choose the right things to do in an intense, rapidly evolving, combative situation when you're plagued by the ego tripartite. Fear and pride and ignorance will make you do martially disadvantageous things. You will not realize it until it's too late. And you may never realize it because you're dead. The monk, in the same way, it's difficult to abide in my wisdom tradition when my ego tripartite is making decisions for me. So I cannot do it. There is a practicality here based upon a division between better things to do and worse things to do, or based upon advantage and disadvantage, based upon strategy, based upon a division between positive and negative. Now, expatriates of Western culture have gone to the East and claim 
or pretend that there is no division between positive and negative in the East. This is not true. They need to solve their daddy issues. They're just running away. In the East, in the traditions that are related to Budo, you have Taoism, you have Buddhism, etc. And clearly in Buddhism, there's no such thing as the Four Noble Truths if you take away the possibility that we can abide in ignorance, meaning unwisely. And even if you take Taoism, there are disharmonious ways of combining yin and yang. When you have a way of heaven, you have a way of not heaven. And in this sense, they're really not different from something as horribly sounding to these people as original sin. There was a time you were in the garden and now you're not. There is a way of being in the garden and there is a way of not being in the garden. There is a way of positivity and there is a way of negativity. There is, an, there is a way of being in accordance with the Tao or aligning with heaven, then there is a way of not doing so. So, try to understand. I do need access to my second mind aspect. I do need some sort of distance from my first mind aspect. But what I'm really after is agency in generating that distance for the purposes of abiding in wisdom, okay? And when we say this and we think about it this way, you're going to realize that I'm not really giving up the first mind aspect. I'm not rejecting it. Because when I abide in wisdom, it's going to function in that abiding. What I'm able to do, though, through gaining agency over the second mind aspect, is I can make sure that it's functioning outside of my fear, pride, or ignorance. This is why there really is no contradiction between the mystical experience and the earthly experience. They're, they're not really antithetical, ultimately. So we've talked about this, that the first mind aspect and the second mind aspect are going to interrelate. They're going to conjoin in this sense. If you're, if you're looking for this ultimate rejection of the ego tripartite, I don't think it's possible. You're a human being. This is a misunderstanding of 
the technology we're using here, this technology of self. You're looking for an integration. You're looking for the ability to go on and live your life, which is going to require your first mind aspect. You can't live a life in the second mind aspect. The second mind aspect has no senses. There's no way to take information in. It does not care if you live or die. It does not sense time. It has no ears, no eyes. It cannot smell. People that have written on this, I would call academics or propagandists, have tried to say the second mind aspect is some sort of state you reach and then you abide in it eternally and you remain in this state of bliss. Somehow it develops ears and eyes and a nose. So you're happy. But I see this as a very akin to a very ignorant way of understanding heaven in Western traditions or understanding God as a genie in the sky. In the West, God is beyond our comprehension. I don't see how we're assigning it gender or any kind of limit that we could describe it as a being. These are naive, shallow understandings. So the same thing with the first mind, second mind aspect. It's not a state. You cannot abide in that state. It's a part of us. And what we're after is the gaining of agency in accessing it in utilizing it, in cooperation or conjoined with the first mind aspect. Right now, in our language, we talk about hippie Jesus. So what do I mean by that? You see, this is a person that is supposed to be in the second mind aspect or the state of communion with the divine, whatever you want to say. They have reached some sort of spiritual awakening or enlightenment. And they act like they're high on drugs. Well, if you follow this, when you look at describing the second mind aspect as a state, you're going to see it's like in an addict's discourse. You, hey man, get in this state and you'll be happy forever. That's what your heroin dealer tells you. Why do I need to be happy for forever? How, how fucked up is my life, my living of my life in terms of advantage and disadvantage? 
does it have to be before I have this drive, this addictive drive for bliss? But at a popular level, what do you see? Oh, my guru better talk in soft tones and want to hug everyone and smile all the time. Do you see? But if you go back, if you go, if you go past hippie Jesus, and you go to Jesus, and really, this is a Western influence. This is, a, this is part of the disease that I would call Americanism. Okay, and let me distinguish something for you. The ideals of the country that we call America, the United States, are quite profound. They're based in deep understandings that are derived from Christianity. They were an extension of a religious practice. I don't mean that. When I talk about an Americanism, I'm talking about the diseases of America, the ones that are spreading all over the world. our need for those states of bliss, our addictive behavior, our addiction to entertainment, to pleasure. Our need to destroy self-foundational elements of the human experience and the deep underlying insecurity at the heart of all those things. It's Americanism that came up with hippie Jesus. It's not Jesus. It's, it, and and it, in, in the Americanism, it's all this, the same idea don't actually read the text. Just make a movie about it. And then everyone believes the movie. The, Hollywood makes our own text, do you see? Makes our myths of today. And so Jesus is, is basically, hey man, it's cool. Again, it go, I think it goes back to daddy issues. Man, won't someone just accept me how I am? Don't say I'm not wise, I'm not living in wisdom. Let's, there is no wisdom. There's no difference between positive and negative, do you see? Isn't heaven how I am now? Aren't I in alignment with heaven now? Can't anything I do martially be advantageous, strategic? No. You go a little bit deeper. It's not hippie Jesus. He's calling you Satan, and he's telling you to get the fuck out of his way. 
will I never. Get thee behind me, Satan. There is a way, there is a non-way. And what balls? The only way is through me. Like me. As I have done. Can't make it up. But if you look east, eastward, it's a little hard to say that there's hippie Jesus. Most of the masters or the deities openly carry weapons. And they cut heads off. They're not slow-talking, heroin-addict-acting people. The mythological symbolism here is there is a way, and I won't cut your head off, and there is not a way, and I will cut your head off. Meaning, there is a way, gain advantage, and there is a way, and lose advantage. There is a way of wisdom, and there is a way of ignorance. So again, without this division, there's no four noble truths. There's no such thing. Then there's no Buddhism. Then there's no Buddha. And if you go deeper, it's not a state. It was a state why is he constantly battling with Mara? And why is it a battle if he's not a warrior? You have people nowadays saying, well, it is actually, it's not a battle. It's not a battle. We shouldn't battle ourselves. There's no need to look at it in those terms. That's an Americanism. It's hippie Jesus, peace, man. Here's a daisy. I'm going to put it on the end of your rifle. No, there is a way and there is a non-way. It's not a state. There's an internal struggle between these things. But there is a solution. And it's this integration between the first mind aspect and the second mind aspect. With the second mind aspect, I can free myself from my fear, pride, and ignorance. With my first mind aspect, I can choose to act wisely in accordance with my wisdom tradition. So you need to learn both. What is my wisdom tradition? 
you need to learn it. You can't just take drugs and have your second mind aspect experience. Nor can you have a second mind aspect experience only. You won't know what to do with it. It won't do anything for you. You can't abide there, so you can't stay in this eternal bliss hippie Jesus is trying to sell us. So this is, there's no point to it without this wisdom tradition. So you have to study the wisdom tradition. And this is why throughout history, there's always stories. There's always parables. There's always morals. Somebody did something, and look what happened to him. Cautionary tales. Stories you can guide your life by. This is a way of introducing wisdom. And Buddha has those same things. You become part of the story. You bob under a punch by ducking your head down and you get an uppercut in your face because you bent too much at the waist, you are being wisened. Do you see? And then you will tell somebody, hey, don't bob like that because you are really open to the uppercut. And you'll tell them, I did it once and sensei knocked me out. Sensei made my lip busted. Do you see? It's now a story. Then you learn from it and you pass it down. Because there is a right way of bobbing and there is a wrong way of bobbing. And you can't just do whatever. In our tradition, in Budo, Everything in your training is working through these two things. I have to learn my wisdom tradition. I have to gain agency into my second mind aspect. And I have to know and learn how to integrate my first and second mind aspects. That is what we do. You could study the philosophy all you want. You could study the wisdom tradition all you want. But you're going to see sooner or later your pride or your fear or your ignorance is going to get the best of you and you cannot practice it. You're going to get on the mat and you're going to be afraid. This throw is scaring the crap out of me. And there is a right way of taking ukemi, and there is a wrong way of taking ukemi. And fear is going to disconnect your center. And fear is going to have you disengage, want to withdraw, want to pull back. And there is no correct fall in that. There's only injury awaiting you. 
there is a right way of taking the kemi where you do not suffer injury. And there is a wrong way of taking the kemi where you do. And it is related to that fear. So in order to take ukemi properly, I have a couple options. I can seek the hippie Jesus way. Please don't throw me in any way that generates fear or triggers my pride. Don't make me feel like my ego is being attacked. This is where the choreographed uke comes from in Aikido and why there is no self-transformation possible through such training. This is an Americanism. The rest of the world that is not influenced by Americanism still has an ongoing history of cultivating self-displacement in their people. Americanism, it's bad. It's bad now to expect people to self-displace. It's a kind of violence. Even outside of throwing, in training, there's going to come a time very soon, even in Aikido, where people have willfully come in on their own accord to practice a martial art, that training in a martial art is going to be seen as a kind of violence and a kind of abuse. Like all things of Americanism, we're destroying ourselves because the ego is left intact and no distinction rests between advantage and disadvantage. So instead of real training or hard training, you just have abuse, you see? Americanism in the United States is forcing Americans to isolate themselves, to become pockets, to become alternative courses. But don't make too much noise because the Americanist will find you. And you're not hippie Jesus enough. You're raising my daddy issues. We want to be able to keep these technologies of self viable. So we require the division between positive and negative, advantage and disadvantage. We require the possibility of wisdom. 
And in that requirement, we require the possibility of ignorance, the wrong way of doing things. Then our technology has a chance to function as designed. Gain agency in the second mind aspect and use it and conjoin it in a harmonious way with the first mind aspect and you can live your life abiding in wisdom, not abiding in ignorance. You can be like the positive examples in all the parables. You can be other than the negative example in all the parables, in all the stories. You won't bend at the waist when it's time to bob under a punch. So you won't get knocked in the face with an uppercut. And everything we do here is of that nature. If we talk about the second mind aspect being not a state, and we're talking about the skill of agency, meaning the skill of activating the second mind aspect, or you could say it inversely, the skill of shutting down the ego tripartite, do you see? Skillfully through agency generating the cessation of fear, pride, and ignorance, however you want to say it. If it is a skill we're after, then there are levels of skill. Do you understand? There's levels of skill. Well, how would we mark level of skill? I would say that we can do it in more places if we are skilled. And we can't do it in as many places if we are not as skilled. I would say also that we can do it under more conditions to the contrary if we are skilled. And inversely, we would be unskilled if we cannot. Meaning, putting it back into our language, in environments, in moments, in space-times where we are likely to trigger our fear or our pride or our ignorance. If we can do it in those moments, we are more skilled than if we can only do it in moments where our fear or our pride or our ignorance is not likely to be triggered. In terms of Budo, because there's different traditions that use the same technology. You have to understand that. The same technology itself is being used by different traditions. Some traditions come in through pride. Some traditions come in through ignorance. Budo comes in through fear. It doesn't mean you don't have to address the other two aspects of the ego tripartite. But Budo comes in through fear. So when we're talking about advancing our skill, we're talking about being able to gain and maintain agency in activating the second mind aspect under conditions of fear. 
if the environment would likely generate more fear in us and we're able to do this same skill, we are more skilled. If we cannot maintain this agency under those environments of greater fear, we are less skilled. In Budo, they use a very simple way of generating fear. It is the fear of death, of injury, of pain, of failure. This is why it is probably not too far off in the future where all martial arts in Americanist dojo will be seen as abuse. Because this is what the Americanist detests the most. Pain, injury, death. Would there, could there be this grab for power in Americanist cultures going on right now if we were not so afraid of death? No. People die through suicide, through heart disease, through metabolic syndromes, through car accidents, at levels that put the viral deaths to shame, to minuscule amounts. But there's something terrifying in somebody who's already afraid of death with this invisible thing. In some way, while we can die in a car accident to and from the dojo any day, we can see it. We think we have a chance. I'll drive safely. I'll wear my seatbelt. I'll buy a good car. But this invisible thing, man, I don't know where it is. I can't control for it, but I'm going to fucking try. You start doing crazy things. But if I didn't have the fear of death to this degree, I wouldn't do the crazy things. If you look at our Americanist lives, it's all pleasure-seeking. Going back to hippie Jesus and the state of bliss once and for all. No more pain, man. No more sadness. No more trauma. It's, a, it's the speech of a heroin addict. Take these pills. Well, they're from a doctor. This is just a dealer. Why? Because pain is bad. 
Pain and suffering is to be avoided at all cost. And now you understand the Americanist drive towards pleasure and entertainment and distraction. And all life decisions are based upon that because we're unwise and we're functioning through fear. But that is how Budo comes at you. If you think about it, be honest. I'm a nice guy in your minds. But part of you is afraid of me. This is Budo. That you'll have a whole bunch of Americanists, a growing majority where that's wrong. But I'm telling you, if your sensei brings no fear to you, this is not a sensei. This is someone borrowing the term. This is, you have hippie sensei, which is not a real sensei. Hippie Jesus is not Jesus. That's why we put the word hippie in front of it. If you go back to the real Jesus, the world was changed. We used to mark it on the calendar. There was before Christ and there was after Christ because the old world was destroyed because that's what real teachers do. They destroy things. Hippie Jesus lets the ego tripartite remain functioning. That's why we're so attracted to him. We start to feel like Oh, I come in the dojo and I'm afraid. You're supposed to be afraid. Sensei always freaks me out. That is what you're supposed to do. But what you'll see is that your ego tripartite tries to deal with your fear by other means does not reconcile it through the second mind aspect. It starts to change it. Hence, how you end up with things like choreographed Aikido. There's nothing terrified about being thrown in choreographed Aikido. There's nothing real in it, so there's no fear in it, so the ego remains the same. I remember I made a post. We made a video on Ukemi because somebody asked us, your Ukemi is different in that dojo. How do you, how do you teach that? So we did a series on the Ukemi. And our back break fall is different from choreographed Aikido dojo. Back break fall. 
For example, we do not do backwards rolls. We do not do them. We don't even practice them. If you went to another dojo, they would do forward rolls for Ukemi, then they would do backward rolls, and you guys would look like you don't know shit. Once the training started, you would be fine. But at that moment, everyone would go, what in the world? These people, can't... we don't do them. We don't do them because there's no martial place for them. So you're not trained in them. We also don't do flips down and up and down the mat. Do you see? Ninja flips. We don't do them. They're cool. But we don't do them because there's nothing martial in them. There's not. So we don't do backwards rolls. And in one of these videos, I make some comment that these rolls don't work, or these where you fall straight back and you have your head on the line of attack that's being thrown. And the guy said, a guy comments, and he says, these rolls work. What you'll find is no one's throwing him. That's what's happened. But he doesn't realize it because no one's throwing him, ever. They're letting him take the fall, do you see? So now there's no difference between wisdom and ignorance. And he believes that fall works. But if we throw him, he's going to get broken on his head. And it's going to be clear that is not how you do a backfall. And if we threw him, we would be evil. We would be bad. Do you see? He would know we're throwing him, and he would know we're evil because his fall didn't work. This is Americanism. The technology does not work. Well, this is what you do in all the ways that you try, for example, to make your teacher not scary. Or all the ways that you make the dojo not scary. Or all the ways that you make training not scary. As if it is not supposed to have fear. and You're not supposed to have fear in it. You're doing it wrong. And what always happens, sooner or later, you're going to bend at the waist, and the uppercut's going to hit you in the face. And then you go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I forgot. That's not hippie Jesus. That's one of those Eastern gods that has a sword, and he's going to cut my head off sooner or later. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I, I remember now. Why have that shock? Why not just do the training? Why not figure out the training's technological solution? Seek agency in the second mind aspect. That's how you reconcile fear. The other way is the addict's way. Take this drug, 
seek pleasure, avoid pain, injury, death, and then fear goes away, man. That's Americanism. It is unwise. Because all it does is try to wipe away the distinction between wisdom and ignorance. That is all it does. So if you want to increase your skill in the second mind aspect, let us say that you had a spontaneous moment of it. It happens like that. The training is designed so that you do things that lend themselves towards an experience of the second mind aspect. Why? Because it's not really something you can talk about. You can't academically get yourself there. I cannot draw you a map. Every word I say goes through your first mind aspect, and you are now making it something it is not. So we don't have a common language on it, which is why we say it in many different ways, many different times, over and over again. That is the best you can do with language. And at the end of all of that, I always tell you, this is not right. This is wrong. What we need is for you to have a common experience. Very much like, if you've never seen red before, I cannot describe to you red. But if you've seen red before, I could tell you, it's a little darker than a Ferrari red. And you'll go, okay, I get it. Do you see? Because you have the shared experience of having seen red. So we do things that historically have been proven to give you or to chance upon the experience of the second mind aspect. And now we can start to work on that. Some of those things are like zazen. And we do shinkan taza. Just sit. Do you see? The ego tripartite is like a cat. You have a cat in your house. You have one cat in your house. Do you see? And when that cat has the house to themselves, oh, that cat takes advantage of the house. That cat goes everywhere. So as you live your life and you're walking around, the first mind aspect, the ego tripartite, is just fine and happy. It just, yeah, let's go. Let's move. Let's talk. Let's have more sensory input. But Shinkantaza, just sitting, you take away some of that cat's house. It's like you introduce another cat, or better, you bring a dog home. Now that cat only comes 
into other areas of the house, only some areas of the house, do you see? It's not that the dog's going to get it, do you see? Because maybe you bring the dog home as a puppy and it makes friends with the cat. It's not going to kill the cat. It's not going to attack the cat. But that cat just doesn't like it. Right? I don't want to go down there. That dog's going to come up to me. He's going to want to play with me. He's going to want to be friends with me. He's going to smell me. That dog always has to smell me. It gets way too close. It, the cat is bothered by it. Do you see? He's like, no, there's no I'm just going to wait. Sooner or later, that dog is going to go back in its crate or going to go to sleep, or go out on a walk, and then I'll come downstairs and climb on the kitchen counters like I, like I used to. You see? Well, Shinkan Taza is like that. When you don't move, you don't talk, and you just sit there, it's like you bring a dog into the house. And the cat can't do all the things it wants to do. The mind can't do all the things it wants to do. It wants to move. Does it not? In your, in your zazen, if we go long enough, you want to move. You want to make a noise. Your skin is all of a sudden going to get spontaneously itchy all over the place. Your temperature is going to change. This is the cat. The cat is pissed that it's got to stay only at the top of its cat tree or in its designated room. The dog gets to go everywhere. That's like the second mind aspect. It, it goes wherever it wants because it has no boundaries. So when you bring this to your body-mind, you might stumble across a second mind experience. Maybe it doesn't even happen on the cushion. But maybe you're being primed on the cushion, do you see? And you might have it out in the real world. People have described it any number of ways, but all these descriptions are post hoc. They're all post hoc. They're the first mind aspect trying to make sense of what happened. See, and so you get, I call them poetic. They're poetic. They're not incorrect, but it's not a literal description of what happened. It's a poetic description of what happened. So they'll talk about white lights, which is no more color because color is dichotomous. They'll talk about falling what, because they were standing on this thing that's solid and now I don't know where the heck I am. You see, because the second mind aspect doesn't have eyes and ears and nose. It doesn't have that stuff. It doesn't have skin. You're trying to describe what happened. And once we get primed, it can happen anywhere, but it could have always happened anywhere. Do you see that? As I described earlier. You could have great sex. You can have it. That's how some people weigh that they're in love. 
And some people will go to the next partner. I don't have that. And they go, I must not love this person. Their, their ego tripartite is trying to make sense of this, but all of it is inaccurate. So once I stumble upon it, I now have a feeling, now we can talk about red. Now we can plug it back into this technology. Now I can start to seek more agency. I know what to shoot for. I know you're going to stumble all over the place, right? Because it's a skill. So I'm going to meander around in being unskilled for a while. But I also have the possibility to become skilled. And we already define skill. Do it in more places, at more moments, where it is likely that you would be dominated by your fear, pride, or ignorance. So in terms of our martial art, I'm going to do it in more places that are more likely to generate pain, injury, death, and failure. The more I can tap in to my second mind aspect under those conditions where most of us would fall victim to our fear, the more skilled I am. This is why training always gets harder. This is why, as we said last time we spoke, you always have this sense of never really getting any closer to the end. Do you see? You're constantly at the door of eternity and infinity because we can always generate more risk of fear and pain, injury, death, failure. We can always do that, especially if we come from an Americanist point of view, where most of us are, have been living a life of pain avoidance, of pleasure and entertainment and distraction. Even small things done in a Buddha way will feel quite dangerous, which we've demonstrated multiple times hey, you are really afraid right now. Please pay attention to how fast we are moving. And then you go, oh my God, Sensei's barely moving, but I am terrified. Do you see? If you pay attention, you were actually afraid before you even came into the technique. So you were already very unskilled. But this is the way that Budo continues to develop that skill through harder training. Once you can do that, you will gain 
another aspect of skill that I mentioned, the transportability. Can you do it in more places? Do you see? Because in many ways, things in the real world, outside of the dojo, because the dojo is a laboratory, it's not the real world. You do not suffer consequences of acting unwisely. Do you see? Even if we punch you in the face, we don't knock you out. Do you get it? Do you understand? It's not the real world. We get to press do-over, reset. We get to shut the computer off, turn it back on. Do you see? No real consequences. It's a laboratory. But as your skill develops, you can start doing it in the real world. Yes, of course, martially. Yes, of course, if you have a professional and you're a bouncer, you're a law enforcement officer, uh, you work in a hospital as security, you, you get it. But there's actually way more places in the real world where we're actually victims of our fear, pride, and ignorance. We just weren't sensitive enough to actually observe it. So a friend that I met online and have known for a while, George Lidyard, he said something that has always stuck in my mind. It was quite profound. And he mentioned how he had students that had gone on to do MMA or he's known MMA athletes, and they will get in that ring and fight that other person no problem, which is quite terrifying. But they can't go and get help or seek help in their marriage because it's too terrifying. Do you see? So in many ways, the real world is more terrifying than the map. We can't let this thing go at work Because we're afraid. I got to make this stupid comment online. I can't just let it go. If you look a little deeper, fear's at work there. Pride's at work there. You can see it. But as we become more skilled, we become able to transport this whole mechanism in all aspects of our lives. And what does that mean? I can now act wisely in all aspects of my life. When we come to our dojo, in Americanism, it's very unpopular, as I already said, to have a teacher you're afraid of. That's a bad teacher. Bad teacher. Like babies. Bad teacher. Teacher, bad. In Americanism, 
You don't have sensei. You don't. You have people who run classes. It's what you have. Now, of course, if all you do is forms, and that is what they mostly do, just forms, you don't need the second mind aspect. And if you do choreographed forms, you definitely don't need to reconcile the ego tripartite. There is no reason. So you don't need a teacher. You just need someone to say, hey, everyone, let's do this one for a while. Okay. And then you do that one for a while. And then you do the next one for a while and the next one for a while. Now you're not gaining any transportability. So you don't see anything practical in it. You, you can hear that now. You can hear that in the language of modern martial artists in Aikido. Man, I just do Aikido because I like Aikido. Why shouldn't we be able to just do Aikido because we do Aikido? Why do we need a practical end to it? This is Americanism. You're lost. Instead of going, man, I don't have an end to my Aikido. Let me figure out how to get an end to my Aikido. They just go, there's no end to Aikido. We just do Aikido because we do Aikido. Americanism. It's happening all over the world. People cannot support what they're doing with wisdom, and they cannot draw a line between ignorance and wisdom, so I don't have a reason why I'm doing it. All they're trying to do is get around the possibility that they may be ignorant. It's a language game. It's a polemical move. I don't have a reason why I'm doing it, so you can't tell me what I'm doing is based in ignorance. I'm just doing it. But it's post-talk. First, you lost the ability to do anything with your art. Now you've come up with an argument that there is no point to it. Of course, there's no point. I agree with you perfectly. The way you're doing Aikido, there's no point to it. You have killed it. You made hippie Aikido, just like hippie Jesus. This role of the teacher, of the real teacher, is necessary if you want transportability. It is necessary if you want to transcend your forms. If you want to be able to bring your second mind aspect into your Aikido, into what you might consider to be Aikido, the functioning of your forms, you're going to need a teacher. You're going to need somebody who can talk to you about a shade a little bit darker than Ferrari red. But if you are going to draw blue and call it red, you don't need a teacher. Do you see? You don't. 
It's a, a little bit darker red than Ferrari red. Oh, you mean green. No. Let's stop talking. Today in Americanism, it's very fashionable to just have a class runner. No teacher, definitely not a scary teacher. No scary dojo, no hard training. Hard training is abusive training. You hit that girl too hard. One person said, you hit that girl too hard. Too hard? Too hard for what? For choreographed Aikido. For life, for professional end, it's too light. Can you get me a towel, please? For somebody working in a custodial facility, it's not hard at all. For choreographed Aikido, for Americanist Aikido, yeah, too hard. Everything's too hard. Jesus is too hard. I need hippie Jesus. Life's too hard. I need this medication. I need this drug. I need this entertainment. Everything's too hard. No pain, no suffering, please. Catholicism is too hard. I need to reinvent Taoism. I need to disarm all these Indian deities. It's just ego reification. Same thing. I need my teacher here, you guys do, here in this very dojo. Sensei is a nice guy. I am not a nice guy. Am I nice? Yes. Am I a nice guy? You're going to have problems. You're going to have problems. Because nice to you means who, who allows my ego to remain in place? Who allows me to be comfortable? Who allows me to stay exactly like I am? That is a nice guy. That's my best friend. Friend, anyone else must not love me. They do not accept me. I should be accepted as I am. Because there's no difference between wisdom and ignorance. This is a human tendency. It goes way back. It predates the United States and Americanism. But it's never been as accelerated as in Americanism. So even my own children, sooner or later, they have an ego tripartite. Sooner or later, they're going to operate through fear, pride, or ignorance. They're human. 
They were raised in the way from when they were in the womb. And they've been on the mat since they were two years old. They could barely walk when they were doing Aikido. Their classes were like five, ten minutes, but they did stuff. What stuff? They worked on fear. They worked on reconciling pain, injury, death, failure. We used to put the physio balls, those large balls, if you remember, some of you. There were videos of it. I don't know where they are now. And we would play a game. They would follow Dad. Dad's going to throw himself on the ball and go rolling over the ball. Well, that means Dad's going to crash on the mat, you see, because the physio ball's tall. They probably thought they're just doing monkey see, monkey do. But what I was doing was fear of falling. This is one of the fears that choreographed Aikido takes out. There's no fear of falling because you get to throw yourself. Another human being is throwing you. It's terrifying. That's why you're not allowed to throw yourselves in here if, unless you're a brand new beginner. But we will work on fear in other ways. But you're not allowed to throw yourself. You'll start to throw yourself and you'll see my technique will stop. I'm not going to give you the delusion that I threw you. You'll see me pull my hands up, step out of the technique, and go, hey, what are you doing? Or I'll say, hey, I can throw you. You don't have to throw yourself. Kind of tease you. Everyone's watching. Everyone knows you're afraid. That's why you threw yourself. Do you see? There's pride. It's set up that way in the dojo. I can throw you. You always go, fuck. Right? In your head. Fuck. You always realize you got called on your fear. Because there's a fear of falling. Because there's a fear of pain and injury. So I would dive over the ball. And then they come diving over the ball, if you remember. Boom! They just crash on the mat. Crash on the mat. Crash... That was the point. Crash on the mat. I didn't try to teach them any role. Crash on the mat. Crash on the mat. Many times you pull yourself out of ukemi because you don't want to crash on the mat. You're not realizing if you had no fear of crashing on the mat, you could take the ukemi you want to take. But the fear of crashing on the mat disconnects your center, makes you go unaware. You can't take the non-injury-causing fall. So that's what they were doing. But even then, there was deviations. Who is going to follow dad? Do you see? One child, over the ball, <laughs> crash. One other child puts a hand down on the other side, puts another hand down, and kind of slinks down. Do you understand? Sort of following dad. That's, that never changes. 
You guys are adults. If they're going to do it, don't you think you're going to do it? You weren't raised by me. You have not been training since you were in the womb. You did not get on the mat at two years old. You're going to sort of follow sensei. Do you see? Why? Fear, pride, ignorance. Why? No suffering, please. No pain. No injury. No death. No transformation. Just leave the ego the way it is. Please support it as it is. This is where you guys will, as I say, seek my blessing. But I don't bless you. Sensei, can I miss this class? I don't give a fuck. You want me to say yes. You already know my answer. If I'm at the mat, where should you be if you're following me? If I'm at the dojo on the mat, where should you be? We have a saying in, in law enforcement when it comes to documenting incidents. Writing a report is a lot of work. Most people get into law enforcement with the sentiment of saying something like this. I, do, I know I don't want to spend my life behind a computer inside a cubicle. Do you see? Not, not everyone gets in there because they want to... Uh, Save people. This is, people have some practical concerns to it. You know? So they get into law enforcement because like Americanists, they're pulled from Americanism, do you see? And they believe the myths of Americanism, so they believe Hollywood. And when you watch a cop show, they're always running around. Do you know what I mean? They're always action. It's action-packed. I'm telling you, the most accurate law enforcement movie that Hollywood has ever produced is Zootopia. Go watch Zootopia, and that is exactly what law enforcement is like for real. You're doing mundane things, writing reports, Struggling with the chain of command, who's no longer law enforcement, even though they wear the badge and the uniform, and they will tell you this, the same thing. I'm more of an administrator. I'm more of a business person. I'm a manager. Because law enforcement is a giant institution, ultimately, and you have a lot of people that are doing desk jobs, the very jobs they said they never wanted. Ultimately, they're doing that. And then it's interrupted by just insanity. Ultimate violence, never-ending cases. But most of the time, you're writing reports. You're in the office behind a computer. 
So a lot of law enforcement officers pulled from Americanism mythology get kind of resistant towards writing a report. But we need to write reports. So we, can, we come up with a phrase, a maxim to help the cultural shift from delusion into reality. And we say, uh, when in doubt, write it out. So if, you, if, you, if, the word, if the sentence starts, you want to say the sentence, should I write a report? You're writing the report. Okay? You get it? The same thing here. When, when you ask me, can I, you don't, you already know the answer. You ask the question, you already know that. You don't need to finish the question. You should already go, this man is not here to bless me and leave me as I am. I am not following. I made a slight deviation. Now, when one child goes flying over the ball and one child puts one hand down, and then the other hand down. Do I hate these children? No. Has one failed me? No. Will I give up on one? No. At that age, they don't even notice it. Because I don't even make a big deal out of it. We're going to keep working on it. Later, as they get older, and they've been Americanized, despite their upbringing, they will start to experience their deviation from their father's way as an Americanist. Dad doesn't love me. He should accept my ignorant way of acting as if there's no distinction between ignorance and wisdom. And if dad really loved me, he would accept me. Do you see? It goes on and on like that. This happens even in my own home. Because they're human. They have an ego tripartite. And regardless of our own household, in Santa Barbara, California, which is one of the meccas of Americanism, the two combine culture and ego tripartite. And they start thinking, I'm failing dad. But they won't seek the solution they take the heroin dad should accept me no no that's not the solution the solution is to learn to abide in wisdom this again in Americanist dojo they would say whose wisdom Whose wisdom? And then they 
run down a quagmire of multiple wisdoms. What do you see? Multiple wisdoms means no distinction between wisdom and ignorance. This is not my wisdom. This is wisdom. Just like I didn't... You bend over at the waist as you're trying to bob under that punch. It's not my wisdom that got you knocked out. It was your stupidity. Why don't you join me in the wisdom course way? If you have to speak in yours and mine, why don't you make it yours? Join me. So I, I have, again, in my own children, raised the same way in the same household. But people are not all alike. I have two sons raised the same way. Just the other night, I had one son who made it through elementary school, junior high, high school, who did not get in fights, did not have risk of fighting. I have another son, not in fights yet, but at risk. When I sat them at the table, and I imparted wisdom on them, you see, because it's more advantageous to what you want to do as a junior high student to not fight at school. It is more disadvantageous in any number of ways to fight at school. This is not abiding in wisdom. So I asked one son, as I've often asked you these questions in a similar fashion, Hey, one son, how many fights did you get in through elementary, junior high, and high school? I know the answer, of course. Zero. It's the same question I ask you. Hey, guess how many times that I tried to make my sensei my friend? Guess how many times I tried or believed that my sensei was not dangerous and scary as F. I used to, t I told you, when I first started training with my sensei, and I had already fought a lot. As a youth, I fought all the time. I street fought all the time. We did not think highly of martial artists. It was very easy to get outside their box. That's not why I got into martial arts. I got into martial arts because I was losing my way. I got in purely for spiritual reasons. So I had fought a lot. And then 
after spiritual reasons brought me to Budo, I became even more skilled at fighting. I had high rank and high position in other martial arts by the time I went to my Aikido teacher. I was no stranger to violence. But when I first got on the mat, and this man would walk past me, I would shake with adrenaline because he was terrifying. Did I think he was abusive? No. I saw the reason for it. I need to reconcile this fear, not turn this man into hippie Jesus, not Americanize him. You're abusive. So I ask you those questions. Guess how many times I did this? Guess how many times I didn't do exactly what Sensei said to do? I didn't even struggle with it. Because I was there to reconcile my ego. I did the technique exactly how he showed it. I didn't need 10, 15, 20 reps. I didn't need even two demonstrations. I didn't need to think over, you, you are the toilet cleaner. Okay. This goes there. All right. That goes over there. Okay. There was no, it didn't pass through my ego filter. Do you see? It was just information. This is how you use a teacher. Teacher's a tool. And at the same time, I knew I was the taker. Not him. You're the taker. Not him. I got nothing to give. I got nothing to take. There's always another toilet cleaner, do you see? It's no big deal. But you could see, even in one household, this first mind aspect, it, it gets us. And this culture gets us. We start acting unwisely. We have no transportability. And we start changing things. We change what Aikido is. We change Budo. We change what a teacher is. We change Jesus. We change the Hindu deities. We just are trapped 
We claim we're not religious because all those religionists wanted to make a distinction between wisdom and ignorance, and that can't be good for anyone. Come on, man. That's just tyranny. But really, we're in the religion of ego. We are our own God, our own priestly class, and our own populace, our own worshipers. And that comes into the dojo too. And because it comes into the dojo too, we can work on the same technology even outside of the scary falls even outside of the techniques in all the other things that is a dojo. Like all the other things that is a law enforcement agency, there's a whole bunch of other things that is a dojo that is not Kihon Waza. And I'll give you one. Where do the cushions, the Zafu and the Zabuton go? They go up top. We could ask this question another way. Do they go in the men's dressing room? Where were they? In the men's dressing room. Let's ask a couple questions. Why were they in the men's dressing room? Why were they not where they go? Why were they not where our teachers said they go? Okay. Who, why were they there? Convenience. Do you see? Convenience for what? I imagine, and you guys will correct me if I'm wrong, I will imagine that they were placed there after that one day when about half of you were late for Zazen. Do you remember that day? Those of you who were here, I said, hmm, it looks like there was bad planning. I remember seeing a lot of people in the hallway with having nothing to do, so no one was getting dressed that could have gotten dressed. And that led to us waiting to start Zazen with about, what, I don't know, seven of you still not ready and in place at the start of Zazen. If you look structurally at Zazen, the start time and being ready on time already is a practice in self-displacement. There might be all kinds of things you want to do. Like, I don't want to have to get dressed so fast. I don't want to rush. Why should I rush? Why should I be so displeased? Aren't I the center of the dojo? Shouldn't I start Zazen when I want to start Zazen? I don't want to feel like that. It made me feel really bad. Since they talked about planning. Fuck him. You plan it. It goes on and on. 
You're like probably right now saying, I don't think I said fuck you, sensei. Really? Is that why you put the cushions where they don't go instead of where I asked them to go? Where they go? Where they always gone? Is that not a kind of fuck you, sensei? It is. It is. Imagine my children. I say to one son, how many fights have you gotten in? Zero. Then the other son says, hmm, I think fighting is pretty good. That's the kind of fuck you, dad. Do you see? Well, for what reason again? Is it really wise? No, it's not wise. It just fits the ego as it is. You might go, what's unwise about putting the Zafu in there? Maybe it's not enough for you. The wisdom to displace yourself before your teacher, as I told you I did with my teacher, maybe that's not enough wisdom for you. I think it should be, though, especially in light of what we're trying to do here. But does it not take space in the men's dressing room now? Can we get in the freezer if we need to? Someone gets injured, get an ice pack. What if sensei wants to use the headstand chair that another deshi bought for the teacher? Now, he cannot use it because you guys piled everything on top of it. Do you see? So it's not very wise, but it is very convenient. So let's just go a little deeper into it. Was, was that place there after that day where half of you were late? Hmm? When did you start doing that? I think after a transition between uh, Zazen to the next class we placed him in there and then we failed to put him on top at the end of the night and I think that just perpetuated and I believe that started after that. Okay, so it was after, as I understand you, you, you we finished Zazen and you wanted to hurry up and get to Newaza, and you didn't organize and plan and cooperate with each other to put them back where they go, and you left them there. And then after that, you go next day for Zazen, and you go, oh, where are, they? oh, we left them in the men's dressing room, and you figured out how easy it is now, and they just kept being put back there. Is that what happened? Okay. So maybe not just convenience, but first inattention. Did we forget they were in the men's dressing room, in other words? Or did someone go, hey, don't put these away because we're going to use them again tomorrow? Do you remember? 
don't worry. Don't worry. Do you understand? Don't, don't make the child's mistake. Sensei's angry. Well, I don't give a fuck. It's your dressing room. I did want to use that device today, but I don't care. Do you get it? But in terms of the technology, you're kind of neutralizing it. You're kind of Americanizing it. You can't do these things in a monastery. You can't. Why can't we do it here? Well, this, I'm not actually a monk. I am just exercising. You see, you're Americanizing it. And of course, you could only do it because you made sensei a lamb. I'll tell you what, I think probably philosophically I would understand. There's no point in being at Sensei's Dojo, my Sensei's Dojo, if I wasn't going to do what Sensei said. There was no point. I wasn't after rank or title. I was after skill. I was after his skill. Do you see? There's no point in going over there if I'm not going to do what the teacher said. I understood that philosophically. Yes, I did. But I'll tell you what else. I wasn't going to do anything that was going to make this man, this dangerous man, this lion, this Hindu deity with a sword that's going to cut my head off. I wasn't going to do anything that might prompt that. There was a survival, prehistoric motivation. Do you see? You guys do not have that. It's okay. Sensei's going to be fine. Yes, I said I'm going to be fine. But you know what? That's good for my practice. That's not good for your practice. Do you understand that distinction? I get to be fine. My practice gets to evolve. My art gets to transport itself more. I become more skilled. Because I have to face the contradiction of followers who do not actually follow. It brings an unconditionality that I must have to the relationship. That requires more reconciliation of fear, pride, and ignorance in the same way that each child has to be accepted, deviation or not. It's what we call unconditional love. That's my practice, not your practice. Okay. So you don't remember? Did anyone come up with the bright idea? Again, you might go like, going, you know, like when my, when my children think that dad, dad hates me because dad's pointing out that I'm not following the wisdom course way, and then they have to realize, oh, dad does not hate me. That's not what dad does, okay? Who had the, who had the great idea? You can point each other out. 
Do you get it? Again, your, our egos are like, well, I'm not going to rat on them, but you're living a worldly way, do you see? You're living a worldly way. I'm, I want to teach something, do you see? Yeah, what do you got? Yeah. Getting the dog done set up, getting to know Wanda, and then the next day. And then I think that just snowballed into yeah. a norm. I get that. That's what Lace said. Do you see? Of course, at that point, we have to take off the wisdom of following my teacher off the table. So we we're already in off the wisdom course way. Okay? And I get it that you're talking about an apparent practicality. But as I said, it's actually not practical, okay? It's not practical in the grand scheme of things, do you see? Which is wisdom, right? A wisdom, uh, you know, for example, let's say you will bob under that punch without bending at the waist, but you don't have your hands up, do you see? Uh, now you're open to the knee kick or whatever, the downward elbow, etc. Do you see that? You have to account for as many contingencies as possible. The more you can do that, the more wise you are. If you can only account for one contingency, it's very difficult to be wise. Okay? So your one contingency here is how convenient can we make getting the cushions on and off the mat? However, very inconvenient for the injured person who needs eyes and very inconvenient for every, anyone else who wants to use the headstand bench. Do you see? So not very wise because of its singularity. Also not very wise because we have departed from our teacher's way and we start subverting the technology about ego reconciliation. Do you see? So not very wise. But I get how you guys got there. Okay? What I'm asking you now is who came up with the great idea. What you're telling me is that no one did, we all did. Do you see? And now we're Americanist. Because there's all different kinds of wisdoms, do you see? And again, because of that, there actually is no wisdom, okay? So I don't think that you all had this kind of mind meld and uh, you all landed on the same spot in exactly the same way. Do you, do you get it? So I'm asking you a question. Now, again, if you had the same ego displacement that I had with my teacher, you would be able to say it. You would be able to say it if you were the person, and if you knew who it was, you would be able to say it was that person. But what I want you to observe in yourself is how this Americanism is in the dojo in the same way that it is in my own children who have been training much longer than you. Do you see? And I want you to understand that Underneath that Americanism is also this ego tripartite. Americanism is just the ego tripartite running wild. Do you see? It's, it's, it's the ego tripartite fueled by immense wealth and the fastest of information highways. 
That's Americanism. It is the ego tripartite, which is why when traditional cultures look at Americanism, they always say, no thank you. Thanks, but no thanks. Do you see? Even in the United States, traditional cultures go, no thank you. We can look at the Amish, for example. Thanks, but no thanks. Seeing what you guys do, you all going crazy, you have a mental illness epidemic, your divorce rates are through the roof, uh, your violence crime is out of control. You, no thank you, I've seen what this gets, and this is not what I want, okay? So you can see, fine. Again, you don't have to say who did it. Okay? Again, that's my practice. Good for my practice. I don't need you to say it. Not good for your practice, though. Okay? The point is being moved on. This Americanism is there. This ego tripartite run wild. And through it, you start to get slight deviations. Some not so slight. Okay? Some quite contrary. Fighting at school, quite contrary. Not putting things where sensei said to put them, quite contrary. Doing the technique differently than sensei does it, quite contrarily, do you see? Again, this isn't contrariness in the sense of an Americanist attack on your ego, although your ego tripartite will experience it as an attack, do you see? It's contrary in the sense that it is not wise. And it is contrary in the sense that now the technology that we're utilizing is non-functioning, okay? So I was thinking about the member board and it's a kind of weird member board because we don't really have rank, but somehow there's some sort of ranking. Do you see that's happening? And I was like, mm, you know what it is? And because if you look at it, mm, there's people with different years on, and you move back and forth if you've paid attention. What, what does it mark? It marks who is following the teacher and who is not. And at which moment, do you see? Who is going over the ball exactly like the teacher did? And who is putting one hand down and then the other hand down and kind of shuffling off the side of the ball? Do you understand? In closing... And why we're talking about it is for you to recognize that this is happening every day, sometimes small ways, sometimes big ways. For my practice, I know who's following me, and I know who's not following me. You're in a line somewhere in the back, you know what I mean? You're kind of like me, like we're all headed north, and you kind of are headed north, but you're not really in line. There's some gaps, you're walking off to the side, you kind of go west for a little bit, then you head north again, now you're northeast. Do you get it? Do you see that?
There's two things to note in this. One is these deviations are not wise, wise ones. They're deviations from wisdom. Just as in, while convenient, in from one contingency, from nearly every other contingency, it's not convenient to put all the Zafu and Zabuton in the men's room on top of the headstand chair and over their fridge. Not very convenient at all from any number of additional ways, okay? And from another final point of view, is if you're not following, you raise the question, why are you here? If you cannot answer that question, I cannot answer that question, I'm telling you, if you're, if you're not following me, I ask the question, why are you here? But when I'm fine with no answer, that's good for my practice. Do you see? But when you have no answer, this is bad for your practice. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com. S E N S H I N C E N com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.